good day to you. It is the Falcon Around podcast. I'm Carl Falk. Thanks for joining me. I hope you uh, are having a good Groundhog Day. That's the day I'm recording this. Groundhog Day, a very special day to me. Our, my, me and my college friends would take this day and live it to its fullest for no reason other than it's Groundhog Day. Why not? I mean, you can only party every Friday and Saturday. You've you got to look for those other days to enjoy your life. We chose Groundhog Day to be our sacred day. So good mood today. Very happy to be bringing this Groundhog Day presentation to you. We've got a lot of things on the docket. Uh, Patrick Reed's still a cheater. We're going to talk about that. The Syracuse Orange got a nice win Still some concerns there, and it's not just Jim Beheim not being able to sit in a folding chair. The MLB versus the Players Association crap I'm going to get to, and it's really, you know, as you look out the window and you see the snow, when spring starts and baseball starts, it gives you that, you know, we're getting there feeling. Yeah, Major League Baseball and the Players Association being unable to come to a an agreement as to when the season should start doesn't really have me feeling that. But I'm going to start by helping somebody I admire greatly, and that's Brandon Bean. Brandon Bean, of course, is the general manager of the Buffalo Bills, hired by Sean McDermott a couple of years ago, and has done a great job of turning over this roster. The Bills make the championship game this year. Well, Brandon Bean's got what I think – is an incredibly difficult offseason ahead of it. Difficult because now the expectations, the bar has certainly been raised. People are looking at the Bills, how do you get beyond the Chiefs? I'm looking at the Bills, how do you get back to the championship game? This team, in a sense, got there, I don't want to say smoke and mirrors, but in spite of some very big deficiencies that need to be cleared up. So I'm going to help Brandon Bean lay out his off-season plan and how to get there. And I, I think one of the first things that I need to point out is that the salary cap is going to diminish this year because of it's based on percentage of revenue. Last year, obviously, the NFL's revenue, total revenue, was down greatly because no fans at the game. So next year, the percentage of revenue, the percentage stays the same, but the revenue number drops which means the salary cap will drop probably 15 to $20 million. It's not going to be a crushing blow, but remember, teams budget every year based on, it's like any other business. If you have an 8% growth each year, your expenses and revenue are going to grow at a similar level, so your profit can remain the same. Well, in the NFL salary cap business, nobody ever expected the cap to drop. Yet that's the case for 2021. And, and nobody will know what that number is for a couple months. And decisions and plans have to be put in place before that. And I think you're going to see some movement prior to the March 1st New Year date. We've already seen Jared Goff and Matthew Stafford get traded for each other. We'll talk a little bit about that An interesting trade because I think people are blown away by the number of draft picks that the Lions got for Stafford. And I want to set some things straight about that. So first, let's get to the Bills. And, you know, I want to start with the coaching staff. And I think here's the biggest benefit the Bills have going into next year is the coaching staff 
remains intact. There was a lot of talk about Brian Dable certainly getting an opportunity for a first head coaching job. Leslie Frazier, one of the finalists or one of the two finalists down in Houston for the Texans job. They'll return pretty much the entire staff is going to return. And when you look at the effect that staff had on this team getting to the championship game, that is a great asset, especially in a year with a lot of uncertainty. Now Brandon Bean has to look at the cap and take a hard look at what do I do to get this team over the next hump? And and you identify weaknesses. That's, to me, your first step. You look at the area of the team that needs the most help. And it's funny, defensively, the Bills were a liability this year. That defense never lived up to the billing we thought going into this year. Ten of the top 15 players on the 2020 Buffalo Bills, the highest paid players, were on the defensive side of the ball. Yet, that was the underachieving side of the ball as well. You look at the drafts. Since Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott have been in power, and Bean didn't take part in the first draft, but Trey White was the first pick when they traded out of the spot that Patrick Mahomes ultimately went in. So Trey White, defensive player. Year two, Josh Allen, the first pick, but Tremaine Edmonds, Harrison Phillips, Taron Johnson, Saran Neal were the next picks in order. Defense, 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 defense. Two years ago, Ed Oliver goes number one overall at the ninth pick. And this past year, they traded out of that first round, but A.J. Epinenza, a lot of draft capital spent on the defensive side of the ball. And draft capital generally brings your salaries down. For the most part, the players I mentioned, other than Trey White, aren't players in that top 15 pay scale. Guys like Trent Murphy, Mario Addison, Quentin Jefferson, Vernon Butler, those are guys in there. And and think of those names I mentioned just there. Trent Murphy, who was very good against the Ravens in the playoff game, was inactive, I think, for five games this year. Yet $8 million went to Trent Murphy this year. Mario Addison had a solid year, nothing spectacular, certainly not worth $10 million, which he was paid. Quentin Jefferson got $8 million. How many plays did Quentin Jefferson make this year? Defensive tackle, in my opinion, was the weakest position on the Bills' defense. Quentin Jefferson and Vernon Butler were signed to shore that up. Between them, $15.8 million. So there's room to cut. And while I'm talking about the Bills have spent a lot on defense, I think the goal here, the first goal, is to spend more. And by spend more, you bring in J.J. Watt. J.J. Watt likely going to be done as a member of the Texans. I don't know what it would cost. Stefan Diggs type deal. And J.J. Watt is 31 years old, so he's a little bit older, has been dinged, missed some time over the last couple of years, through the last five, as a matter of fact, been on IR. But J.J. Watt, to me, would give the Bills a piece of the puzzle that they're not going to find anywhere else, and that's a pass rusher, an impact player, a player that every time the opposing quarterback comes to the line, he knows where J.J. Watt is. Watt's personality, his desire to win, fits the culture, fits the process. I think it's a no-brainer. And that right there, while you may look at the salary implications – Trent Murphy's gone. He's a free agent. 
Mario Addison, either pay him $10 million next year or you take a $4 million dead cap hit. To me, that's $6 million savings. Goodbye, Mario Addison. Quentin Jefferson, $8 million cap hit or a $1.5 million dead cap space. Okay, he goes as well. Inverted Butler, $7.8 million or $1 million against the cap as a dead cap hit. So basically, if you get rid of those four guys, which, in my opinion, doesn't impact the team a whole lot. Starla Tulele is coming back. Ad Oliver still going to be there. Harrison Phillips still going to be there. You got a guy like Mike Zimmer, who's going to be back. Justin Zimmer, not Mike Zimmer. Justin Zimmer, who's going to be back again, low cost. Plus, you can either bring in a free agent or, or draft somebody. I think there's room at defensive tackle for improvement. I think there's a ton of room there. I also think that spending money there did not work this year. But that's $33 million off the cap. You would have a $5.5 million dead, $6.5 million dead cap hit, and you would save $26.5 million. Plenty enough to add J.J. Watt. Plenty enough to deal with the new cap restrictions and still add J.J. Watt. So that's how I work on these things. And then if you look at the defensive line going forward next year, J.J. Watt and Jerry Hughes are the defensive ends. A.J. Epinen's a swing end. we still got guys like Mike Love and uh, Daryl Johnson who've shown some things. So you've got some depth there. Defensive tackles, Zimmer Phillips backing up, Starla Tulele, and that all. It's a doable situation. Now, Latulale's cap number is going to come back into play, and that's a fairly significant one. But again, you've saved $27.5 million. Star's cap number and J.J. Watt's cap number could probably be managed with the savings you just had. So the defensive line stays similar in price, but in my opinion, much greater in productivity. The linebacker position needs work. Tremaine Edmonds, in, in long term, I'm not sure Tremaine Edmonds is middle linebacker. He plays hesitantly. He doesn't play aggressively all the time. I'd love to see him as a down defensive end on passing situations and see what he could do. With his length, his athleticism, the you don't have to think, rush the passer. Love to see what he could do in that situation. I don't know that he could transition to that, but I think long-term, you're not going to pay him a ton of money to be your middle linebacker. I just don't think he's that good of a player. I think he's a good player, but you're not going to pay him to be a great player because I simply don't think he is. Matt Milano is going to get a lot of money this offseason from the Bills or from somebody else. I'm not sure the Bills can afford Matt Milano. I think they need him. And I would suggest trying to save him. You know, you signed Tyler Matakavich to a $3.5 million deal. That's what he would get next year. That's a lot of money towards a Matt Milano. And Matakavich doesn't get on the field except, except for special teams. That's a big luxury to have there. A.J. Klein's a $6 million player. Well, he's getting paid to be. I'm not sure A.J. Klein is a good option for a starting linebacker. Again, this is where the draft is so important in the second, third round, finding a Matt Milano where you 
can keep the cap numbers down but continue to get the same productivity. You need speed at the linebacker position. It was never more evident than in the championship game against the Chiefs. You want to beat the Chiefs. You want to get to that level. Add speed at the linebacker position. Josh Norman's going to be gone, and that's $5.8 million off the cap as well. The safeties are fine. Micah Hyde, Jordan Poyer, excellent. You've got Sirhan Neal and Dean Marlowe behind them. Depth, you don't have to mess with that. Cornerback Trey White signed, don't have to deal with that. Taron Johnson and Levi Wallace are both adequate, but I still think you need another piece. Dane Johnson was very good when given a chance. I think he's a depth piece. But it wouldn't surprise me if one of the higher draft picks the Bills have this year is there a cornerback that they can develop into a starter opposite Tredavious White to build that up. So the defense, to me, needs an overhaul. And it needs an overhaul up front. And it's a financial overhaul as much as anything else. Sean McDermott loves having eight defensive linemen that he can rotate in and keep them fresh. you got to continue to be able to do that, but you're not getting the bang for your buck up front, and that's a huge problem. And that's where, to me, you've either, A, got to find an impact player like a J.J. Watt or draft an impact player, or C, just not pay guys that aren't achieving what their salaries are saying they should. And I think you got four guys that I highlighted that are absolutely guys like that. So that's the defensive side of the ball. It's interesting that, again, we're talking about defense, the, the way to change the defense, to complement the offense, to get to where the Chiefs are. Or in my case, I want, them, I want the Bills to be able to get back to the championship game. One of the smartest men in NFL media is Greg Cosell. Greg Cosell looks at more film than anybody. I want you to listen to what he said on One Bills Drive about how the Bills should close the gap between them and the Chiefs. Here's Greg Cosell. Defending the better mean you're going to hold them to 27 or 30. You're not going to hold them to 13 or 17. Uh, so at the end of the day, if you're if you're the Bills, you know, and you look at this offseason, do you think in terms of, hey, we even need more wide receivers and more speed on the perimeter because when all said and done, that's the way we're going to have to beat the Chiefs. We're not going to beat the Chiefs in a 17-13 game. So that's why it's a difficult question because you look at your whole team. If you just look at your team in a vacuum separate from, let's say, the Chiefs or other teams, you might say, hey, we need a great edge pass rusher. We need to run the football. We need this. We need that. But at the end of the day, to beat the Chiefs, you're going to have to score 35 or 38. It's an interesting point. And in this day and age of the NFL, and while I just spoke a lot about the defense, the offense is where things are going to happen. Look at the Super Bowl this week. Everyone's focused on Mahomes and Brady, and, and rightly so. And, and the Chiefs offense is – legendary at this point for what they're able to do. And Brady obviously is legendary for what he's able to do. It's ironic though, when you look at this Super Bowl matchup, to me, the most important position group on the field is going to be the Buccaneers defensive line. Because if they're able to impact the game the way I think they can, then Mahomes won't be able to do what he's able to do. 
So it's it's an interesting give and take. But I, I do think Greg Cosell is on to something. You need another speed wide receiver. John Brown didn't get the job done this year, and in part because of injury. He's a good player. He's a much better receiver than I thought he was. But next year, John Brown's cap hit is $9.5 million. That's a lot of money to pay a guy who at best is your third primary target. I mean, Cole Beasley's number two to Stephon Diggs. And then I guess John Brown would be number three, although Gabriel Davis is going to have something to say about that. So John Brown goes away, and there's a $1.6 million dead cap hit there. So you'd save $8 million. That money can be turned around and spent on a big-time number two or a 1A, if you will, to Stephon Diggs. A guy like Allen Robinson is going to cost a lot of money. He'd be great. He'd be an excellent compliment. But I've got a name that I think maybe makes a little bit more sense. And considering what Brian Dable likes to do offensively, this may fit even better. And it's Curtis Samuel. And where did Curtis Samuel play? Carolina. You know, there's a direct line between Carolina and Buffalo. Curtis Samuel is a guy who's got great speed, can impact the game by running those jet sweeps that they use Isaiah McKenzie for. McKenzie could stick around and become the return guy. But I think Curtis Samuel is also somebody who stretches the field and gives the Bills an opportunity to become a better overall team because I think he could do a lot more things than John Brown can do in the passing game. There's also, you could go for a guy like Corey Davis, who's likely to be a free agent. Tennessee, former, I think he was fifth overall for the Titans, just never lived up to it. And he's a good player, not a great player. But again, bringing somebody in to take even more pressure off of Diggs and Beasley, giving Josh somebody else to throw to. So that's my wide receiver group. The offensive line needs some work, and we saw that during the championship game. It's a good unit, not a great unit. Deion Dawkins has grown into a really nice left tackle. I didn't think he'd be as good as he is. It's worth every penny of his new contract. He's solid. At right tackle, Daryl Williams this year was very good, and I think you keep him there. I, I think you he was on a one-year deal. Wasn't paid much, and I think you go out and do whatever you've got to do to re-sign Daryl Williams to allow him to hold down that right tackle spot. I know Cody Ford was supposed to be there, and then Cody Ford was supposed to be the right guard. Well, this is a big year for Cody Ford. This is year three, and, and granted, year two ended with injury, but he hasn't shown through the first year and a half that he's played that he is an NFL starting offensive lineman he just hasn't shown it It hasn't been there consistency hasn't been there so right guard's a problem like Bodger like Bodiger was there he's an unrestricted free agent Brian Winters came in veteran depth there's a there's a hole there at center Mitch Morris is fine his cap number is something you could move on from it's a it's a 10 million dollar cap number It'd be a $5 million hit if you want to move on from him. If you did that, I would encourage re-signing John Feliciano. Feliciano's a guy who brings some energy and toughness to this group. If he's your starting center, I think it's better than if he's your starting guard. 
I think you keep Morris up front and draft in the later rounds a center to groom to replace him next year. I think you, you keep Morris for one more year. But then the left guard position, that's John Feliciano's position. As much as I like the guy, I don't think it's worth re-signing him. Remember last year, Bills re-signed Quentin Spain. And when he didn't start, things went south, and they ended up cutting him and taking a big dead cap hit this year. you got to be smart with who you're re-signing. And Feliciano, I think his ceiling is too low to give him much more money, especially if you draft at that position or you bring in another veteran who you think can step right in, a plug-and-play guard. I think there's money to be spent there, and I think an improvement can be had with that money. So the offseason needs to be a draft pick that works and a free agent signing that works. And all of that can be mitigated if Cody Ford ends up being the player he was drafted to be. He was a second-round draft pick. He hasn't been that. He hasn't been a good player. He's been a guy who's a second-round pick and he keeps getting a chance because of that, but he hasn't lived up to it. Tight end position is another position that needs an overhaul, big time. Now, Tyler Croft is going away. That's $6 million off the cap for nothing. Lee Smith, his deal next year, $2.5 million. Lee Smith, everyone loves. He's a veteran presence, part of the culture, the process. For $2.5 million, you can keep him around as a blocking tight end. Obviously, Dawson Knox stays. But you need a big-time tight end. And if, if you're going to improve this offense, like Greg Cosell said, you add to the tight end position. And there are guys out there that are going to be available. And one guy I think you could trade for and maybe get in here would be Zach Ertz, who seems to be part of the change in Philadelphia. And, again, culture, productivity, the money's not terrible. I think, you know, for a player in a mid-round pick, you could probably get Zach Ertz out of Philadelphia. That would be an interesting move, and I think it would really upgrade a position that hasn't – who's the best tight end in Bill's history? You know, you think about this. You look at some teams the way – they're able to find guys to plug and play at that position. Now use the Dallas Cowboys. This year they lost three starting tight ends, ended up with a fifth-round pick, Dalton Schultz. Schultz will be the starting tight end next year. They seem to find tight ends there. In Buffalo, I think probably the best tight end ever, I don't even know who it is. Reimersma? Maybe? I, I really couldn't give you. It, it's it's been a problem for the entire history of the franchise. Needs to be better. Hopefully that can happen. A uh, lot's been said about the running back positions. Zach Moss getting hurt, exposed Devin Singletary a little bit. Do you need to go out and spend a first-round pick and maybe get Travis Etienne out of Clemson, the kid from Alabama who looks so good in the championship game? To me, you don't spend at the running back position. You draft somebody third, fourth round like the Bills have done the last couple of years. But by improving the offensive line and by Brian Dable improving some of the running schemes, you give Moss and Singletary a better chance of success. I think that's where the run game needs to improve up front. 
not the running back position. Which brings us to the most important position on the field, and that's the quarterback position. A lot of people are going to say, well, you got to extend Josh Allen. You got you to sign him to a big deal now. And I completely disagree with that. Allen's going into his fourth year, and you're going to pick up his fifth year option. This year, Allen's very manageable with about a three and a half to $4 million cap hit. Next year, that fifth year option is about $21, $22 million. So Allen's going to be fine money wise and really doesn't have much leverage. I get it that Kansas City locked up Patrick Mahomes before his fourth year, but I think that's the outlier. As good as Josh was this year, he was not that good his first two years. Mahomes has been good from year two, year three, now year four. We've seen the same player getting better in small increments. Josh Allen took a giant leap. Now, the question I have about Josh is, does that giant leap sustain? Do you take another step forward or do you drop back a little bit? And I think you got to be careful when you're talking about quarterbacks. Mentioned that Stafford and Goff got traded for each other in large part because Goff's contract was terrible. They extended him into a contract that he didn't earn yet. You look in Philadelphia, the problems with Carson Wentz, it's his contract. If he didn't have that huge contract, they'd move on from him. You've got to be careful when you're giving somebody a multi-hundred million dollar contract. And that's why another year of Josh taking a step forward would be great. And, and he has no leverage. So you're not doing anything bad to Josh Allen. You know, the one guy who tried to force the hand, trying to get an extension before his fourth year was down in Dallas again. And first off, you don't play Ezekiel, you don't pay Ezekiel Elliott until you have to. He held out. They caved, signed him to a huge deal. And Ezekiel Elliott hasn't looked like the same running back that he did his first couple years in the league. And yet the contract that they signed him to was detrimental. That's an overreaction by the team. If Josh wants to hold out and miss games, that's his choice. You have to play hardball sometimes. And frankly, I don't think Josh Allen would do that. I don't see him being that type of guy, but he's going to get his money. It's just a matter of when. And the other reason you sign guys early is because you want it signed before somebody else does because so it won't cost more money. Look at Tredavious White last year signing before Jalen Ramsey. Saved the Bills a bunch of money by acting that way. But if you look at the quarterback position, who's going to get that next big contract? Deshaun Watson already got his. Mahomes got his. Lamar Jackson will get similar to what Josh Allen will get. It's They're not going to take huge leaps forward in the amount of dollars. So you're not risking costing yourself a ton of money by waiting. So you definitely have to wait, in my opinion, on Josh Allen, especially this year with the salary cap coming back a little bit. Wait till next year when it will likely take another jump and you're better positioned to absorb a bigger cap hit. Do not resign. Bring back Matt Barkley. He does a lot for the team in the room. He's a competent backup. And you still got Jake Fromm, who's a developmental candidate. So my synopsis for Brandon B, you need an edge rusher. Maybe 
try Tremaine Edmonds there a few times. You need speed at linebacker, depth at secondary. New interior offensive line. I want to see two new guards minimum for training camp next year. You got to spend money for a tight end or draft pick, a high draft pick for a tight end, something you haven't done, and get a true wide re- number two wide receiver to complement Stefan Diggs and take some of the heat off of them. This is a fun project for Brandon Bean because you're looking at maintaining and improving incrementally. Not you're not looking at a rebuild, a tear it out, but you've also got to look at the mistakes you've made in the past, some of the draft draft mistakes you've made, some of the bad choices in free agency. I think Vernon Butler was a waste of money. I, I, I don't think he was anywhere close to what he was paid to be. Why spend that money to not get better? If you're going to bring somebody in and pay them substantially they should perform substantially better than the guy they're replacing. Didn't happen a lot on the defensive line so far under Brandon Bean, and I think that's something he needs to look at. So that's the Bills' offseason plan. Brandon, you're welcome. Just call me if you got any more questions. I'd be happy to talk to you. The Super Bowl preview, I, I already teased it. To me, it's the defensive line for Tampa Bay. If they can get home on Mahomes without blitzing, I think they will be in a good chance to get the ball to Brady Lake to win the game. JPP, Jason Pierre-Paul, has had a rebirth down in Tampa. Dominic and Sue, everyone looks at Sue for the negative. You know, he's a bad guy, he's a cheap player, he's dirty, he's all these things. Agreed. But guess what? You put him on a team and in the middle of a defensive line, you're not running between the tackles. Bringing Vita Vea back from injured reserve is huge because Vea next to Sue, it is just a stout middle of that defense. William Goldston on the other end is going to be a factor as well. If Shaq Barrett can come in and get home, get some hits on Mahomes, again, Mahomes and the Chiefs are going to get theirs. Just make them work for it, and hopefully – get them to turn it over. Devin White's been great. Just great. He's exactly the linebacker I wish the Bills had. Uh, Sideline to sideline linebacker making plays and hits all over the field. He needs to be great again. He and Levante David need to dominate at that spot. The other question on the Tampa defense, and I think, again, this everyone focuses on Mahomes and Brady. To me, it's all about Tampa's defense. The safeties. Antoine Winfield Jr. has just been great. And it, it's funny, watching him last year at Minnesota, University of Minnesota, I thought to myself, this guy's a first-round pick. I, I saw three or four games, and he made plays in every game. And all I can think of is this guy looks like his father at a different position. You remember Antoine Winfield, great player for the Bills and Vikings for a long, long time. Well, the kid looked just like the old man. And I thought to myself, He's a first-round pick, and draft time comes, and obviously people put way more into testing than they do into film. He falls to the second round. He's an all-pro player as a rookie this year. He was fantastic. He and Jordan Whitehead need to be healthy enough to play. Whitehead injured his shoulder in the NFC Championship game. One other note on Tampa, the kid from Hobart, Ali Marpet. I, I just Every time I think about that, Division Three kid from our area, 
playing in the Super Bowl, protecting Tom Brady, and I think he's Tampa's best offensive lineman. It's really good to see, and it's really great for the area. And congrats to Hobart and congrats to Ali Marpat for being able to get out there and get that done. Likewise, the defensive line for Kansas City is, to me, the most important factor. Because, again, you know the givens. Tyree Kill's going to make plays. Travis Kelsey's open already. Mahomes is great. How how does the new-look offensive line without Eric Fisher, who's going to be gone because he ripped up his Achilles, how is he going to be able to handle how, – how are the Chiefs going to be able to handle that Tampa D-line? Well, likewise, the Kansas City D-line against a very average Tampa offensive line could be huge. We saw it against the Bills. Alex Okafor was really good. D. Jones, Frank Clark, Derek Nandi, all of them in the backfield – creating disruptions on the offensive line. Can they do so again? Because here's the thing. Mahomes can use his legs a little bit to get away from the defensive line of Tampa. We know Brady can't do that. Pressure up the middle, Brady is done. Brady threw three picks because Green Bay was able to do that. Can he take care of the football? And can that defensive line disrupt things and get into turnovers? I think the biggest key to this game is who has more sacks and quarterback hits. Right there, that is what I'm looking at. Whoever hits the quarterback the most, has the most sacks, they win the game. Turnovers, obviously. Any big game, this is no different. A, a strange matchup, two running backs coming off an injury who haven't had great years but have been impactful for the teams. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, having him back, does he help Mahomes out, slow that pass rush down by being an effective runner of the football? Ronald Jones is back. Jones had some great games this year. Is he going to be healthy enough to help Brady out with the running game? And then he always looked for the X factor, and I got two. I got two X factors, one from each side, and they're both big play wide receivers who are down the depth chart. McCall Hardman, who fumbled against the Bills, but ends up becoming a big part of the story by scoring a touchdown later. He's also the return man, has great speed, can take a five-yard swing pass and go the distance, I think he has a chance to be an X factor. And Scotty Miller, the little white kid who looks like he doesn't belong out there but continues to make plays, how does he impact this game? And I think he needs to impact the game. Everyone knows Mike Evans is going to get his looks. Everyone knows that eventually they're going to go to Cameron Brake and Gronk. Godwin's going to get his targets. But a guy like Scotty Miller, if A.B.'s able to go, A.B. will get his. But there's also a guy, Tyler Johnson, who's a rookie who's been making some good plays when given the opportunity. I think those guys have a chance to be big impact players going forward. So we'll see how things go. One other X Factor, guy who I just love to watch play football, the Honey Badger, Tyron Matthew. I think he has a chance to turn this game around through his play. Smart, aggressive. I think if he comes up with a big play, it makes it a little easier on the Chiefs. The Chiefs. I think the Chiefs are going to win 31-24. Should be a good game. A lot going on with that. Looking forward to the Super Bowl. And I don't care about the commercials, so don't ask. The commercials are just stupid. Some of them are funny. Great. There will be no funnier commercials 
than what's going on with progressive insurance right now and you turning into your parents. So don't even care. Major League Baseball is scheduled to have their players report to spring training in about two weeks. I said schedule. Doesn't look like it's going to happen, or maybe it will. First thing I want to point out, if you're a professional athlete and you have a date set of when you're to show up and begin your season, you and your trainer likely have charted a path to ramp up to that point. So your physical peak is when you're supposed to ramp up to. If spring training is pushed back, if the season is pushed back, you have a couple things. You've already gotten to your peak. So now do you back it down? Do you stay at your peak? Either way, it's not great physical training. We saw last year a number of injuries because the players had ramped up, shut down, had to ramp up again. Now they're playing injuries. Can't happen. We'll see how the injury thing is affected. But Major League Baseball, at this point, is still trying to figure some key points out with the players' union going against them a little bit. The players' union, they want to play 162 games, have the season start as scheduled April 1st. The owners want to push it back to an April 28th date, 154 games. They want it moved back because they think that the pandemic will likely trail off a little bit by then, and maybe you could get fans in the seats. Fans in the seats mean money. Money is a good thing to the owners. So this discussion has gone nowhere. But think about this. We still don't know if there's a designated hitter in the National League. When you're team building, you need to know the rules. It's pretty simple. Are there going to be seven-inning doubleheaders again? Is it going to be that dumbass tiebreaker rule with a runner starting on second in extra innings? All of these things are huge parts of the game. The owners, their biggest concern, they want extended playoffs. They want more teams in because that allows them to sell more television games. Regardless of who's attending the games, they're going to make money. That's their biggest sticking point. It's really a bad look for Major League Baseball. And, you know, if you have heard Rob Manfred speak lately, good for you because I haven't. And I, I don't know that he has spoken. I don't know where the leadership is in that office, but I know it's not coming from the commissioner's office. This is a joke. This, this situation is going to get ugly. Again, I said last week, people aren't paying attention for it, to it right now. Because there's a lot going on with the Super Bowl, hockey, basketball. But soon enough, we're going to be looking to baseball. And it's just not happening. And, you know, for similar, in a similar story, local, it was announced last week that Frontier Field is going to have $25 million worth of upgrades. Which, I, I love that Frontier Field is going to be upgraded. I love Frontier Field. I love the Red Wings. I love going to the ballpark. Major League Baseball simply puts a gun to minor league team's head, says you got to do this or else we're going to take your team away. Well, right now, why hurry into any sort of improvements when the stadium wasn't used last year? There's a good chance it's not going to be used this year. I mean, if if we don't start the season until mid-June, major league season, do you think there's going to be a minor league season? 
And it's very possible that that's what we're looking at. I hope I'm pessimistic with this, but a bad look for Major League Baseball to strong our minor league teams when there's no guarantee of a minor league season for the second year in a row. Just, again, baseball's leadership. Clueless, clueless, clueless. Big trade in baseball. Nolan Arenado goes from the Rockies to the Cardinals for uh, a couple bats and a bag of balls. Oh, yeah, the Rockies threw $50 million in on that one as well. Arenado's already got eight gold gloves. He's got a career 890 OPS. The best third baseman in the game got traded for very little. And again, the Cardinals just seem to make these deals and stay relevant and stay competitive. You look at the corners now that they have with Paul Goldschmidt at first, Nolan Arenado at third, good defensively, productive hitters in the middle of the lineup. The Cardinals lineup wasn't very good last year. It suddenly got a whole lot better. Big trade, and I'm sure there's a few big market teams that are looking at that deal thinking, if we had known that, we definitely would have been in on it. SU Hoops, they beat North Carolina State the other night. It was an interesting game because Syracuse had been undefeated when they out-rebounded their opponent. Then they were below 500 when out-rebounded by their opponent. Well, they were out-rebounded by their opponent in this one in a big way. Killed on the inside. And I thought NC State did a great job of working the middle of the zone. And Syracuse zone isn't very good at this point. That's not breaking news. It's just without a long Brahma Sidibe type player in the middle, it, it suffers. Rebounding suffers. Alan Griffin is becoming a very fun player to watch because he's doing things at every part of the floor. He can shoot it. He's starting to take it a little more aggressively to the hole. His rebounding and shot blocking because of his athleticism has been very good. It's fun to watch a player develop. And strange, he's still on Bayheim's short leash. You see Bayheim get in his shorts constantly. Quincy Garrier didn't have a great night. He missed a lot of bunnies at the rim, but it was still 10 to 10. Had a 10 to 10 double double. He's become a very effective player. But the story in this game was Kadari Richmond. He's long, he's athletic, he's able to get in the lane and finish, and down the stretch, key baskets. They were clearing out and letting him take his man, and he was finishing. And it was impressive to see the freshman put in that situation and achieve in that situation. Buddy Beheim showed signs of getting out of his funk. Shooting-wise, he was four of eight from three. Still missed a couple that he's got to knock down. He's too good a shooter to not make the shots that he made. They've got Clemson on Saturday. I just, the more I watch this team, the more I see the same. It's today's Groundhog Day. Syracuse University basketball is Groundhog Day. It's the same thing over and over. And they've been weak in the middle for years. They haven't had a center that you could run an offense through since Rick Jackson left. Think about that. There's been nobody in the low block that you run offense through. And even as good as Quincy Garrier is offensively, he much prefer start facing up from about 12 feet. He uses athleticism to drive by. He's not a post-up player. When you have a bunch of shooters, to have that post-up player would be an enormous advantage. So it goes all the way to the top. And like I said last week, 
Jim Beheim has been as great as anyone could ever hope for their coach to be. I truly think it's time, and it's going to be a big, big deal, but it's just time. Father Time gets us all, and even if you're a coach, Father Time gets us, and I do believe that Father Time has gotten Syracuse and Jim Beheim. want to throw one more thing. Interesting article the other day in the New York Post about post-Big East, the teams that wish they maybe had a do-over. Three teams they pointed out that when they left the Big East, their programs have gone significantly downhill. University of Pittsburgh, and you can look at the coaching changes they've made there. Jamie Dixon leaving, Kevin Stallings coming in. Now they're starting to get better with Capel. But interesting, Mike Bray at Notre Dame, that program has gone downhill since the Big East. And the third one they pointed out was Jim Beheim in Syracuse, and they looked at the recruiting Post-Big East recruiting, it's not been good for the Orange. It's not been good at all. So, interesting there. The last thing I want to talk about today is Patrick Reed. And before I get into it, I want to show you the video of what happened on Saturday out at Torrey Pines. Remember, Patrick Reed has been accused of manipulating the rules before and multiple times. This is nothing new. This is a guy who's won the Masters. He's a great player. He's a great Ryder Cup player, but he does things like this. What a foot behind my left. Did it bounce? Uh, no, I didn't see it bounce. And Nick, the supply yeah, guys, for scoring it. is. Yeah, didn't bounce. This ball over here. Talk about the lift, clean, and place, though, that's in effect oh, again, special. even today on a sunny day, Nick. Yeah, it's got huge help. They were unable to get the mowers onto the, the fairways last night or this morning. They've had four, four plus inches of rain, inch and a half yesterday. So um, that's why they added another day of lift, clean, and place. So let me bring Ken, Ken can bring you in right away. <laughs> Tell me what Patrick's able to do with this situation. Right here, he is just determining if his ball is embedded or not. So he's, uh, he's looking to see if it's actually below the sur surface of the ground. Sometimes in this deep rough, it'll nest, and it seems like that it's uh, embedded, but he'll get clarity here from, uh, from a rule official. Well, it looks like he's already picked the ball up, Ken. Because there, there's the golf ball. Or was that it? Was that at his original spot? Okay, let me explain. If if you're not a golfer, if your golf ball plugs, in other words, it breaks the level of the ground, you get to lift it and and put it somewhere else and play it from there. Golf balls. If, if the big thing about did you see a bounce on the fly, they'll plug. They don't plug on a bounce. The first bounce could just land. Patrick Reed, to me, should have never touched his golf ball. And, and the PGA Tour cleared him. But this is a guy who's cheated before. And he cheated again. It's not coincidence. It happens once, shame on me. It happens twice, well, guess what? I'm a cheater. And he is a cheater. And when he moved his golf ball, that's horrible. You don't do that. 
And did it not look like he was playing with the ground, like pushing it down to show that there was a little lip where the ball had broken the ground? This gave him a huge advantage. He ended up winning the tournament. In my opinion, he should have been disqualified from the tournament. It's just a bad look for a guy who continues to have bad looks about him. If you're playing and, and you, you, there's something weird, you ask your partner. You ask your, the guys, you're, hey, can I move this? And a lot of times, you know, me and my friend, yeah, go ahead, do whatever you want. But when you're on the PGA Tour and you're unsure, the first thing you do is bring somebody over. You'd never move your ball. Never. You can look at it and think and maybe touch it to see, but you don't move it. When he moved it, to me, that was an admission of guilt. It just can't happen. This guy's a cheater, and it's a bad, bad look for him and, frankly, for the PGA Tour to continue to have him out there. Now, in fairness, Rory McIlroy did the same thing and was cleared the same way. Rory has gone on record before saying there's nothing worse in golf than being called a cheater. Now, I didn't see video of what Rory has done. I don't know if he moved the ball and played around with the ground after he moved it the way Patrick Reed did. They had four inches of rain on Saturday, on Friday. This happened on Saturday, so the ground was very soft. I just don't understand why the PGA Tour isn't looking stronger at Patrick Reed. And, you know, some people are saying, well, it's his playing partner's fault. They should. No, they got to play their own ball. They're, they're out there not to watch their opponent. They're out there to play their own ball. It's the PGA Tour with video and with everything else that's going on. Sorry, you can't touch your ball. You can't in that situation. Get the rules official over. Let him make the determination. Let him be the one to pick your ball up if need be, and then move forward. It's a bad look. Patrick Reed is a cheater, and that's the worst thing you can say about a golfer. You don't want the guy who's a cheater to be the guy on the PGA Tour winning tournaments. It's just one of those things. If you're a golfer, you get it. If you're not a golfer, you probably don't. But trust me on this one, nothing worse than cheating. On the, on the golf course. It's just one of those things. That's it for this week. Enjoy the Super Bowl. I hope everyone has a good week. Stay warm. Looks like winter's here for a little bit longer. That, that little gopher saw his shadow this morning. So six more weeks of winter. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast.